Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 259 being recorded on Thursday, April 8th. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, how's your spring going up there in uh, sunny Chicago? It, it is going well, but you, you've already thrown me for a loop. Uh, I, I don't deal well with change, and you took the year out of our, our intro thing, so it total, I'm, I'm totally messed up now. It's 2021, so you're you're back. Thanks, thanks. I appreciate you appreciate you saving me. Yeah, no, uh, spring is going good. We had two lovely days of like like high 70, low 80 degree weather here, and I got super excited. And then, as is often going to happen in Chicago, it was all a mirage because today it's like 60 and raining. Womp womp womp. Sorry to hear that. Exactly. Here in North Carolina, it's funny because we've had. A bazillion new people moved to our state, some of them from the Midwest, a lot from California and New York. And when they move here, we're always like, hey, in February, you should be – get ready for pollen season. It's going to be like un- unlike anything you've ever seen. And they laugh and like, ha, we have pollen in San Francisco. Are you crazy? And then our real pollen season hits, which we're in the thick of right now, and they lose their minds because we, you literally get a uh, – you know. Coating on your car where your car is essentially just looks like it's been painted yellow. So we are in heavy, heavy pollen season right now. Wow. And I have seasonal allergies, so I am uh, you know, pretty pretty loosey-goosey right now. I think I've had like 16 Benadryls and five Zyrtex. So if I'm a little spacey, it's uh, due to that. I love that. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask if if you like develop a um, – uh, a stronger immunity system because that would that would wreak havoc on me. Although it has to be good for the car wash industry, it is. So that's the comp, that's the silver lining. So yes, we we are very very busy right now. So that's good a good thing. Yeah, where I grew up in Southern California, we had a very similar issue. The salt water from the the beach would make all the cars filthy. Good. We will have to uh, look at San Diego as a, a possible location. Yeah, the beachfront homes in San Diego, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So tonight we have a lot of good listener questions, but before we get to that, it wouldn't be a Jason Scott show if we didn't talk about a little breaking Amazon news. Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. So, Jason, I was excited um, as our resident grocery guru um, in the chief digital grocery retail grocery grocery store officer. Um, I wanted to get your expert opinion. Um, I saw this uh, on Twitter. Uh, I guess there's a magazine called Hungry, and it's missing a bunch of vowels, H-N-G-R-Y, Hungary. Um, and they had a scoop. So they uh, have confirmed that Amazon is building 11 140,000 square foot um, uh, micro fulfillment centers. It's kind of funny to talk about 140,000 square feet and talk, call it micro. Um, but I guess, you know, when the alternative is a million, it is small. Um, and they are designed to move 100,000 fast moving grocery and convenience SKUs uh, in less than 45 minutes. And the initial set of cities are Seattle, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Dallas, Nashville, Detroit, Chicago, San Diego, Phoenix. Um, and they're going to be launching them this year. This is super interesting to me um, because uh, you know we had we've had several Amazonians on the show, past Amazonians, and you know Amazon does these pretty big cycles on an annual basis where they're going to make big investments. And to me, this was a really big signal that they've decided that this is an important category. Um, so I, I tweeted about this, and then I had several what I would call Amazon insiders, not employees, but people that are maybe in orbit away from Amazon and know what's kind of going on. And the thing that surprised me is that they're, they were saying that GoPuff, um, who we've talked a little bit about on the show, but I want to use this as an entree into that uh, to get your thoughts on that too. 
they are growing at a tremendous pace. Um, I've heard several people say they have over a billion dollars in sales. Um, they are a retailer, so it's not a GMV marketplace kind of thing. So GMV uh, is re- revenue. Um, and then they did an acquisition of an alcohol company that was also about a billion dollars. So now they've got kind of a $2 billion company. They're going after some categories and areas. Amazon is very keen to get to so grocery and alcohol. Um, I looked them up uh, in some of the databases that GoPuffs raised over $2 billion, you know, squarely in the, they've passed the unicorn status, which is over a billion dollar valuation. And I think they're into the DECA unicorn kind of uh, status. So um, really interesting moves here, kind of, uh, uh, I guess, a, a battle between these two folks breaking out into the open. What what do you think about all that? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Um, the Maybe I'll start with Bebmo and work backwards to Amazon or, Amazon, or GoPuff and work backwards to Amazon. Um, the, you know, we talk a lot about COVID accelerating trends that already existed. This whole notion of delivering alcoholic beverages was already uh, really starting to pick up some steam. We've had Drizzly on the show before, which is one is one of the dominant players in, in alcohol delivery. And most of them are via these, these um, complicated marketplace models because you, you have to do the delivery from someone that has a liquor license. Um, and so then the pandemic vastly accelerated liquor delivery because under normal circumstances, the vast majority of alcohol is consumed what the industry calls on-premises, which means at a bar. Um, and so because you know bars were closed or constrained so much, we suddenly were consuming way more alcohol at home, which means we had to buy it or get it delivered. We got a bunch of meals delivered from restaurants that weren't allowed to bundle alcohol with them in many cases. Um, so all of these trends made it uh, really accelerated the alcohol delivery industry. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't, you know, we don't, there's not great numbers, but my sense is that um, no one benefited more than GoPuff. Um, and partly because they are closer to a first party model. So they, they did buy a very significant alcohol chain on the West coast, BevMo. Um, so they own a bunch of their own liquor licenses. They own a lot of product that they deliver to people. Um, and they actually started out not delivering the liquor, but delivering the snacks. Um, so GoPuff started out delivering, you know, munchies, presumably to people that were high. Um, hence the GoPuff uh, delivering snacks on college campuses. Um, and so they part of their model is they actually inventory their own snacks. They have these micro fulfillment centers. And so. Buying Bevmo gave them a bunch of liquor licenses, and it also gave them uh, a bunch of locations that they could stage uh, their their fast moving food, alcohol items. And uh, GoPuff is always focused on cold, so they're one of the best um, nationwide cold chain one hour delivery services. So if you need to store something cold and then deliver it, um, they're they're one of the few options out there. So for all those reasons. Uh, GoPuff is booming. Then, you know, we throw in the trend we've talked about a lot on this show, the retail media networks and, and all these sellers, you know, monetizing their business by selling ads. So, you know, GoPuff has been able to successfully get a nice chunk of ad revenue from that. Um, and I have to believe Amazon, uh, sees that and says, Hey, we need, you know, they obviously have a lot of their own plans and capabilities around two hour delivery of those kind of items. Um, and I, I'll bet you GoPuff uh, is sort of accelerating Amazon's aspirations. Um, another uh, another insider told me that GoPuff has an ad network that's kind of getting a fair amount of traction, and that's another thing that got Amazon's attention. Uh, you know, we've talked about on the show that they their their ad network is getting a lot of steam. It's it's kind of getting to be almost the scale of AWS and contributing quite a bit of profit. Uh, it's in the kind of pesky other category. So it has some other things mixed in there, but from what we can tell, it's, it's pretty, pretty large and growing, making Amazon the third largest ad network uh, behind Google and Facebook. Um, what, what do you think about, does that make sense to you? Are you familiar with this GoPuff ad network? Yeah, a little bit. Um, it, it's tricky. I, I do think they're generating some significant revenue. Um, the, the wrinkle is, uh, 
advertising for alcohol is dicey. Um, so, you know, um, so I think what GoPuff is generating the most is, is like the, uh, ad revenue from the, these like CPG snacks and things like that, that are getting delivered with the alcohol. Like the, you know, the bummer is the alcohol people spend so much money on prem and with that closed, they would have shifted a bunch of money into these other channels, but it's, 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 um, risky to do. And, and, you know, most of the big players aren't willing to take those those sort of uh, risks with with the various compliance entities. So um, so that's a little complicated. And then, I, you know, I would say they're probably generating a bunch of revenue, but it's not a very mature platform with a lot of tools yet. And so I haven't seen any any sizing on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, that is the news. And now let's go into... Listener questions. All right, our first listener question comes from um, uh, Ted, and he says, uh, and I'm going to shoot this one over to you, Jason. Um, will headless commerce take off in 2021? Why or why not? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Talked about a lot. We've covered it a few times on the show. Just uh, uh, for people that may not be familiar, um, it's a it's a method of uh, implementing an e-commerce site. So instead of a a piece of software that's kind of a monolithic software that has all the checkout functions and and product catalog functions and all those sorts of things with the user interface, um, it's a it's a system where where um, the software company provides a bunch of APIs and you kind of build your own e-commerce experience leveraging those APIs and it generally you build your own uh, user interface so hence it's headless um and it's the definitely the most trendy architecture right now it's talked about the most um the and and it kind of is catching on but the the reality is we're just not really going to know because one of the problems with headless commerce, or it's a benefit of headless commerce, but it's a problem when you're tracking it is uh, you, you can do it very piecemeal, right? So you could, you could have mostly monolithic software and you could say, Oh, you know what? My checkout isn't very good and I can't take all the, the alternative payment methods I'd like. So I'm just going to improve my, my checkout flow. And so you could add a couple headless APIs just for the checkout flow, and it could be 4% of your total e-commerce site, but now you're partly headless. So, you know, mm-hmm. so I would I would say most people that build something new are going to adopt a, a technology um, like that, but it often is very incremental versus a big bang where you kind of rip out everything you had and put something else in. So it's it's a little bit like the the... slowly increasing water temperature in the frog like we're we're all getting boiled by headless commerce but like i don't know when you'll officially declare it like taking off versus not taking off yeah and so some of the big players so there's commerce tool or tools and then um fazzle has a company called fabric and we had some confusion over multiple fabrics but but he is one of the fabrics (laughs) and then uh, anyone else there because i've seen I've seen some of the Shopify folks and, and uh, sidebar. It seems like they've hired everyone I know in e-commerce uh, at Shopify. I, those guys are hiring. It's like some kind of an incredible clip right now. Um, I see them all talking about how they effectively are, are at least framing Shopify as ha- being a headless player, which doesn't make sense to me unless there's like some study APIs I'm not familiar with. Yeah. Um, so, so who are the players and, and is Shopify a player? Yeah, so there's kind of a couple categories of platforms that that offer headless commerce, and it's such a buzzword. I like a lot of other things. I would argue people that like are 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 not very truly headless commerce have an offering they would call headless commerce. But so there's a bunch of traditional platforms that were monoliths that saw, saw this trend coming and kind of pivoted, right? So to me, that would be someone like an Elastapath um, that that kind of had a turnkey platform and they, and they really like focused on the headless version of that platform. And today I think any new customer is probably mostly headless. Um, the, all of the, the brand new platforms tend to be headless. So certainly fabric, 
um, uh, there's a a bunch of small players. It's a pretty fragmented industry. You mentioned Commerce Tools, which to my knowledge was really the first platform out there um, that was headless. So they're now, they've been, I want to say they've been doing headless for like 10 years. They were originally a spinoff of Hybris before SAP bought them. Um, And so uh, those guys have been doing headless for a long time and got traction. Um, But then there's the the traditional SaaS players. And the, the two biggest examples would be Salesforce Commerce Cloud, which formerly was Demandware, and Shopify. And both of those are monolith software that's offered via SaaS. But both companies have recognized the headless trend and have launched separate products, which are an API uh, uh, SaaS model. So you can rent Salesforce commerce APIs and build your own headless solution uh, that leverages the Salesforce infrastructure. And similarly, you can, in via Shopify Plus, you can rent APIs from Shopify and build a headless solution in Shopify Plus. So they, they both are uh, very legitimate um, headless solutions, but I would say you know, as a percentage of their total user base, it's it's a small minority of their user base that have that headless configuration. And then in the case of um, Salesforce, one other note I would make is one of the problems with headless is, okay, so now you don't have a user experience or a, a GUI and you have to build that yourself. And there's cost associated with that. And you may or may not be good at that. You may not follow all the the industry convention. So there's pros and cons to not getting a a store in a box. Um, and particularly as we talk about on this show a lot, mobile is so complicated and evolving so fast uh, that there was a company out there uh, called Mobify that had built a really good mobile user interface that could leverage all of these, these headless commerce stacks. Um, and they were acquired last year by Salesforce because that's um, uh, there's so much energy there. So now somewhat ironically, you can buy Mobify user interface and Salesforce Commerce Cloud APIs and put them together. And I, you know, and you're technically headless on the one hand, but on the other hand, you got a, a complete turnkey solution from Salesforce. Yeah, it's like when you were a kid, remember those things that had like three little sections and you could change the, the head, the body, and the feet? Um, so sounds like that's kind of where we're going to. Yeah, I mean the the simple metaphor for these platforms are like Legos, right? So you you know you get a kit of Legos and you can you can snap them together like the picture on the outside of the box, or you can you know snap them together in an entirely different way if you want. Um, so let's go to the next question, also from uh, Twitter. Uh, this is from Retail Razor, and the question is. Amazon has been getting hit with an endless series of media articles about their private label development at the expense of other merchants on the platform. But retailers have been doing this since, well, forever. Uh, example, department stores, private label apparel. Uh, why is Amazon different? Yeah, and this is, uh, while I'm an Amazon guru, I'm not uh, huge on politics, but but uh, this is a political kind of uh, you know thing that's going on here. So, um you know, you've got so you've got Jeff Bezos, uh, world's richest man, I think, at this point. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I think Elon's kind of catching up to him at some point. I think they crossed for a little bit when when Tesla. They did, like, but it shouldn't even count because you know Jeff Bezos has like a ex wife that also has forty billion dollars. <laughs> True. Yeah. <laughs> but she's she's uh, giving it away as quickly as she can. So she yeah, can actually, she's much more admirable uh, than him. That's true. She may be uh, in the millionaire poorhouse, uh, and then um, you know another thing is he bought the Washington Post, uh, which has uh, you know also seems to have uh, caused a lot more political kind of uh, venom to come his way. Um, and you know Amazon itself is a big company, and you know there's uh, they're they're just easy to shoot at and. Um, yeah, so you're hearing a lot of talk, antitrust talk. A lot of folks want to break them up. Um, the the two most vocal that I see are Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, yeah, they very much want to break those guys up. Um, Bernie Sanders is always talking about how they need to pay more, um, and you know, 
if you look at the disparity between what Jeff Bezos makes and the $15 an hour employee, that's a big number. Um, let's see, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, then there's um, Amazon doesn't pay taxes because they take every penny they make and plow it back into growing um, and hiring more people and, and buying warehouses and building, you know, we just talked about, they're going to build, you know, what was it? 11, 140,000 square feet fulfillment centers. That's not cheap. I don't know. Each of those is maybe 50 million bucks. So that's $6 billion right there. You know, so, so they're, they don't, they take every penny of profit and, and they just see such a big opportunity. They keep plowing it in and therefore they don't make profit and you get taxed on profit. So they don't really pay taxes. Um, and then of course, every big company does a lot of, you know, um, corporate, uh, all legal, but corporate uh, setups so that they can avoid taxes like, They'll have their European group in some kind of a tax-free area, and then you know they they will set up the structure of the companies um, to minimize taxes uh, globally, and then also in the United States. So I, th- I think that's why they're under a target. And then you know there's uh, it's also really easy to find third-party sellers that are brands that have sold on there, and a private label came out of their stuff, and it's um, it's kind of catnip for reporters to find um, a. You know, it's very easy to find people that are very upset about Amazon. Um, I see it on Twitter all the time. Um, you know, there's third party sellers that are very unhappy uh, about the way they're treated and uh, it creates a lot of possible content. Um, so that's that's my take. I, I think it is, um, you know, if this ever got into a court and you were looking at the facts, I think uh, Retail Razor is right that there's nothing new going on here. And it's kind of silly to argue this. It's even silly to argue the antitrust argument because, you know, I think it's pretty fair to define Amazon in the same context as Walmart, right? Um, and, you know, Walmart is as big or bigger. So it's not like Amazon is is got some unique position compared to like a Walmart. Target's really big. There are other very big, large retailers. Um, and there's it's also hard to point to, you know, the consumer being harmed, you know. Oh, poor consumers, they're getting cheaper stuff faster. Um, it, it's there's not a lot of it's not like a monopoly where you're price gouging or there's no choice. Um, if anything, Amazon's lowered prices and increased choice. Now, that being said, if you look at Europe, they've kind of defined monopolies differently and there doesn't have to be a consumer damage. So there's a lot of talk about that kind of coming. And then the Biden administration hired someone that has that similar kind of a a take on on antitrust that it's really the size and not the, um, you know, the consumer uh, impact. So, so those are uh, my loose reading of some of the political wins. Um, you know, what my take is companies move a thousand times faster than governments and they'll be able to um, navigate whatever the government throws at them and succeed. If we all remember, um, well, you and I remember the Microsoft, you know, all the hoo-ha around antitrust Microsoft's doing okay after that. You know, they're, they they did fine. They had to just kind of do some little things around their browser. Um, they spent a bunch of money uh, around it, but at the end of the day, it was a, effectively a slap on the wrist, if anything. So, so I don't. I think it's just a lot of noise, and I don't really foresee there being anything that slows down Amazon from this. How about you, Jason? Uh, yeah. I mean, there, <laughs> there's a lot there. Uh, I w- I won't rehash it all, but the um. I think you're right. Like, I think the biggest companies in capitalist economies are always targets um, for a lot of concern. And there generally there are always some valid concerns and there's always a lot of scrutiny that isn't necessarily valid. Right. And certainly, you know, Walmart's had is fair. It's fair share. And before that, Sears did. And before that, uh, uh, Montgomery Wards and Woolworths and A&P. Like, you, you can go back as far as you want. These big, huge retailers, like, there have always been concerns about their size. Um, the bottom line is that, you know, U.S. Uh, antitrust laws are not super strong. And the way they're in, written and enforced today, I just don't think Amazon has very much risk. So, per your point... They're probably way more exposed uh, in Europe, where where there's a much broader perspective on antitrust. But the the thing that a lot of these lawmakers are going after is just like per per retail razor's point, like is kind of a misunderstanding. Like there, there's this thing. Uh, oh my gosh, Amazon's using uh, 
sales data from their third-party sellers to design their first-party products. And when you say it like that, it, it doesn't sound very fair. Um, but the the point is, retailers have been doing that for the entire history of retail. I mean, you know, Sears had a lot of their own private label products in the Sears catalog. You know, listeners may be familiar with brands like Kenmore and Cra- uh, Craftsman uh, and, you know, all, all these, these various brands that Sears built, right? You know, doing these exact same things. So that's not new. There, some antitrust people would say, oh, but you know what's different about Amazon is they're also a platform and an ad network, and they get extra data from that that a traditional r- retailer wouldn't get. So they, they would say, I don't object to Amazon using the retail data to make their own products, but I object to them using their their platform data um, and their their the, the ad spend data that they're getting. Um, but even that, to me, is a thin argument because... Every other retailer have advertising programs and co-op programs and slotting fees and things like that. So I just um, I, I think there's some legitimate things to look at all these companies about. But I, I think that particular one is a hard argument. Um, and, and again, the U.S. antitrust laws are pretty heavily in Amazon's favor. Um, so I, I, I think we're always going to hear about this stuff. But I, I, I don't think. Amazon's fundamentally different than than previous private label efforts. The one thing that is better about Amazon, you know, and therefore, you know, potentially more concerning is um, Amazon collects a lot more data about how you shop and what you don't buy. Right. So a traditional retailer doesn't know very well what other products you considered on the way to buying the brand that you bought. But Amazon, you know, because by virtue of them being online, they collect much more data about your browsing behavior before you buy. And so that's not saying it's it's an antitrust violation to use that data, but that is a new data set that, you know, uh, Sears and Walmart didn't necessarily have it at their disposal. Um, so, yeah, I think we'll keep hearing about it. The you, you kind of alluded to it, but the one funny thing that happened this week, or probably not funny if you're Amazon, uh, the rumor is that Jeff was upset that Amazon executives weren't defending Amazon aggressively enough on on uh, for all of this this noise, and so it appears that a bunch of Amazon execs totally stepped up their social presence and started arguing up to and including arguing with like sitting Congress people on Twitter. Um, a congressperson, you know, was complaining about labor standards in Amazon and made reference to Amazon employees having to pee in bottles because they can't take a break. Um, and a senior vice president at Amazon like chimed in like, that's absurd. I can't believe you believe those rumors. If that was really true, do you think people would really want to work for us? Um, and then a week later, Amazon had to print a retraction and say, like, it turns out a bunch of our employees do have to be in bottles, <laughs> but so do UPSs. Um, so that probably like when you have to issue that press release, that's not a good look. Yeah, that's a tough one. And it, it is confusing because there's um, the DSP program aren't really Amazon employees, but you know, there's, I guess, yeah, they're in a branded truck. They get, they, they're kind of uh, assumed to be. Yeah. So again, uh, this yeah. one is, yeah, this next one is for you, Jason. And it comes from listener Wanda Cadigan. Wanda, I hope you enjoyed that. We know that's your favorite song. Um, now to your question. We are seeing a big increase in visual media use cases for e-commerce. It's the new digital proxy for in-store experience. I'm curious about your thoughts around shoppable video trends and adoption, especially in the Americas. Oh, and there's a there was another question that we'll kind of um, group together here, and this one came from Darren Archer. When will we have a major paradigm shift from the online store Category pages and PDPs seem dated in the era of TikTok, Instagram shopping, and all these other things that are like pop-up shops. When will retailers make a big change, step change in the experience? Yeah, both good questions. And I do I do agree they're bundled. And um, uh, side note, I think uh, I'm assuming Darren and Archer is a, a former Adobe uh, Elastapath and now um, at The Gap. Um, so, so he, uh, has definitely been around a lot of the issues that we're, 
we're talking about today. Um, so, so yeah, the, uh, Video commerce and, and is often called live streaming commerce, although a ton of it is not live streaming, um, is huge right now. It's, it's even huger in China, um, where by some estimates, 11 or 12% of all e-commerce is live streaming. Um, more, more consumers start their shopping trip on, on, uh, Alibaba's live streaming site than they do on Tmall right now. Um, so, so this live streaming commerce has totally exploded in China, and there uh, appears to be appetite for it in the U.S. as well. And so, you're you're definitely seeing the platforms that that can support it. Uh, so, most notably, Instagram and TikTok um, are are leaning heavily into it. Um, and uh, we've seen Walmart do two two pilots where they they had commerce events on TikTok now, um, and the jury's out on like so social commerce in the in the west is way smaller than than uh it is in china so it maybe 12% of e-commerce in in china and it's like 4% of e-commerce here so um so it has a ways to go and the jury's out on whether chinese consumers are different than western consumers and it's never going to catch on or whether they're just ahead of 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 uh western consumers and they kind of leapfrog um, so we'll, we'll have to see, but I can tell you a ton of retailers and brands are super interested right now. And the part of the reason is implied in, in, uh, Wanda's question, um, a, a sort of inconvenient truth about all of this e-commerce that we've invented is, um, we've, we've made it very easy to find, uh, products that you know you want and buy them. And we've taken all the friction out of the buying process. And so, you know, there's a saying, uh, e-commerce solved buying, but broke shopping, right? So, you know, it's super easy to buy stuff. You can go on Amazon. There's 800 million products. You type it in the search engine, a product pops up, you click one button and it shows up two hours later. You're good. Um, what there is not is, discovering products you never knew you wanted, right? Like there's never like creating demand for products. Um, a lot of the things that traditionally stores were good at and a lot of, th- you know, discovery experiences that happen in stores, e-commerce isn't particularly good at. Um, and so the hypothesis is that this social commerce has the potential to um, replace all those discovery experiences. And the way I think of it is kind of decoupling commerce, like the buying and browsing used to both happen in a store. And that was kind of the monolithic solution, but the digital disruption of commerce means buying and browsing now can be decoupled and browsing can happen in all these micro moments on TikTok and Pinterest and, and, uh, um, uh, Taobao. And uh, the the buying can happen in another moment on Amazon or Walmart or or wherever else. So um, I definitely think there's uh, it it is we're going to see it can continue to increase. I don't know whether we'll catch up to China in the near future or not, but there you know appears to be a lot of headroom, and there for sure is a lot of interest both in. Um, retailers and brands that want to experiment in the space and platforms that want to, you know, capitalize on those experiments. So I, I have major social commerce initiatives with almost every client right now that are kind of, you know, mostly in the test and learn mode. Yeah. A um, couple of things you didn't mention. Amazon's poking around here. They have Amazon Live, which is this video program that's kind of running. And um, it's pretty terrible right now, but, um, you know, I've seen some stuff start to get some traction there. Um, they have a couple of influencers that that hop on there. Um, and don't forget that Amazon owns Twitch. Uh, so there's there's Twitch has really started with video game streaming, and and there's there's a lot more. That pl- platform is widening. There's um, some interesting things. We've had you know some Congress people get on there. We've had um, there's a lot of interesting music content. Um, and then there's a lot of innovative new social media companies like Clubhouse. And you know, at some point, maybe there'll be some selling that happens through some of those channels. The other one is I, I highly recommend everyone um, make sure you listen to our deep dive episode recently where we talked about all the changing privacy rules. I think that's going to be another catalyst for this because um, Facebook is in this kind of squeeze uh, between Apple and 
um, you know, uh, Google in a way. Um, Facebook doesn't have a platform like they do. So Facebook could lose some ad revenue and they're doing a lot to replace that through a variety of different experiments. And I, I think we'll see Facebook doing a lot more in this, this area and they own Instagrams uh, and you know, Instagram live is getting a lot of engagement as well. So uh, a lot of interesting platforms where this kind of live streaming and more social commerce could come from. Yeah. hundred percent. Amazon's done a ton of experiments and, and uh, uh, Twitch is a very powerful platform. So like I, I certainly, uh, think Amazon is is uh, you know at the front of this trend along uh, with with uh, several other front runners. This one, this one, uh, this next question is it's a it's a tough one. Uh, so I'm going to throw it at you here. It comes from Brendan Witcher, um, and I can't hear his name without hearing the toss a coin to your Witcher song. Uh, and anyway, Mister Witcher says. When will the Jason and Scott show t-shirts finally be made available? And can I have mine signed before you send it? You guys rock. Thanks for helping to keep balance in the parentheses retail force. Um, thanks, Brendan. Um, Jason, any, you're our, our chief swag officer, chief swag, digital retail grocery officer. What, what's the take? Uh, yeah, great question, Brendan. Appreciate it. Uh, so we do have some swag, and I'm sure I'm going to re- regret saying this, but uh, if you ping me on Twitter, I will be happy to send any listeners some Jason and Scott um, uh, re reappliable stickers for your laptops and and uh, um, the your bedroom windows and all that good stuff. We have uh, not offered T-shirts. I'm open to it. I have to be honest, Scott, and you you weigh in on this as well. Um, our our logo works reasonably as podcast cover art, but it's kind of intricate for a t-shirt. I just I'm not sure it looks cool. Like I feel like we need a more elegant logo for a t-shirt. And then side note, I would also point out, like you and I have both uh lost some significant weight since the caricatures were done. So I like part of me before we invested in a lot of apparel, I'd want like skinnier caricatures. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to um, maybe we'll have a, con- a reader contest. Readers can submit their <laughs> their artwork. <laughs> I'd love to see what we get from that. Yeah, and side note: um, when he then, says bring um, balance to the it, force, I assume we all knew that you're the dark side of that. Ooh, okay. Ouch. I'll point out that your son is clearly on the dark side. And, uh, yeah, well, but my son also likes you more than me, so that's further proof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't. No accounting for taste. Um, okay, uh, back to real questions. Uh, so this one uh, is from Kevin Cronin. Uh, what are your thoughts on e-commerce conversion tracking and how it has positively and negatively impacted companies and the industry? Wow. Uh, so I don't know what your angle for asking this question is, but it's a great question in my mind. I am anti-e-commerce conversion. Um, so it's a Super important and useful metric. Uh, but for my entire career, I've been walking into situations where people were using it as a KPI. And for me, it's an incredibly stupid KPI um, because I can't tell you how many times I've had clients say, Jason, I want to hire you to improve my conversion. And my answer is always the same. That's awesome. I accept because um, I'm going to do like make your your e-commerce site password only so that only g- good customers that I know have buying intent are going to come in and your conversion rate is going to go through the roof. Um, your your or revenue and traffic for free. will go way down, right? Because conversion is related to all these other things. Um, and while it's possible to do multi-session conversion, the overwhelming majority of people when they talk about e-commerce conversion are talking about single session conversion. Um, and very often, it's not profitable to sell one thing one time. Um, and so again, so for all of those reasons, uh, I think you need better KPIs. Like uh, for, for sure, conversion is a metric that, that should be included in your, your um, overall ecosystem, but that's not the thing that should be steering your business. And, and I, uh, I don't know if this is what you were implying in your question, Kevin, but like uh, there's a shockingly high amount of e-commerce operators that, that give too much credence to conversion. Interesting. Or, or uh, you could always give products away if you really want to increase conversion. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can sell uh, dollar bills for for ninety eight cents um, and and have a very high conversion rate. Um, I, I would throw. Uh, yeah, uh, I had something else I was going to add to the conversion conversation, but I totally lost my train of thought. So I should have come to rehearsal. <laughs> Our, um so all the tracking changes aren't going to really change conversion. We'll still know when people are on our site. On site None conversion, again, if you're doing more nuanced multi-touch attribution type conversions, there uh, some of the depreciation of the third-party cookies and the and the uh, the mobile tracking is going to make that more difficult. Um, so we'll we'll see how that that all. Uh, plays out uh, oh i do remember my other point on conversion a fun fact about conversion average conversion rates on e-commerce sites today are almost identical to what they were in 2000 like the it's cha- uh, mobile's changed a lot but but the the overall desktop conversion rate hasn't changed very much like across there's huge deviation but across a ton of sites it's about two percent of visitors buy something um as we've already talked about stupid metric and a lot of those people didn't come to the site to buy something maybe they wanted to check your store hours or your 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 store address or or all sorts of other things um but what i always chuckle about that is there's this whole industry of conversion rate optimization companies and and what they do is they they come in with this one tactic which is multivariant testing and they say like we're going to improve your user experience and dramatically improve your conversion rate um and there's a bunch of companies that have been doing that for 20 years uh and yet the conversion rate in all our experiences today is exactly the same as it was 20 years ago. And so, uh, like we, we like to joke that like all conversion optimization regresses to the mean. How's that for a math joke? It is good. Uh, if conversion isn't a good KPI, then what are the Jason recommended KPIs? Yeah. So go listen to, um, our customer lifetime value show uh, with Dan McCarthy. Um, and and to me, metrics around LTV or CLV are much more valuable than, um, than uh, just conversion rate. Even if you're going to adopt a conversion rate, uh, I like to do some, some more, ca- more derived conversion rates that I sometimes call the real conversion rate where, um, I infer your mission from uh, some of your on-site behavior, and I only look at the conversion rate of people that actually had some buying intent, right? So, so in that example, you would you would take all the people that used your store locator, um, or you know, left on the rating and review page, or something else, um, or the warranty page. Uh, you you wouldn't count all of them in your conversion rate because they probably had some mission that they accomplished on your website that was other than buying something. Uh, but for sure, having a multi-touch attribution system and ultimately getting to a, a, a CLV or LTV is the way to go as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so let's move on to the next question. Uh, ben Wynn, uh what do you guys think is keeping Amazon from entering the promising African market? Yeah, um, Amazon's geographic expansion has definitely slowed. Um, yeah, if you look at kind of the last markets they've opened up, I think they're opening in Poland right now. Um, India has been a big one, and they've just really that one seems to. Uh, I'll use this uh, analogy of of kind of the snake eating the pig, right? So, so India seems uh, they went storming in there, and it seems to have been a handful for them. They really haven't done a huge, meaningful expansion since India, in, in my recollection. I don't think Poland would count as huge. And then there's um, Brazil and Australia are kind of in that category of most recently geographies they've opened. And I, I think what's going on there is, you know, uh, they have to evaluate every opportunity just like any other company, even though they're they're huge. They have, you know, not endless resources, so they're always having to figure out where to apply them. And, you know, I could say the same thing for South America. South America um, commerce is really complicated because you've got a big cluster of countries. You've got different languages, currencies, shipping things. Now, Mercado Libre in South America has gone in there and figured all that out. Um, Africa is you take you take South America and I think Africa is like four times the complexity there. And inside of Africa, you've got 
you know, on the order of 50 countries, lots of complexity. Um, and, you know, if you're Amazon, do you go after that or can you go get that in 10 years, let it mature and worry more about GoPuff taking, you know, a, a big grocery category in the United States? Um, so I think that's really what it is. It's a prioritization exercise. And for whatever reason, Africa just hasn't made it to that priority. Um, I guess you could say they've also expanded in the Middle East through that um, acquisition they did Soup. of a big marketplace there. Yeah, I haven't really heard much about that. I haven't heard them you know, adding 1P to that or anything. Or I don't think they rebranded it. I think they run it as almost like Zappos as its own kind of little standalone thing. Um, so that one's kind of weird because in the past when they would go into a new geography by acquisition, they would rebrand it to – Amazon Japan, Amazon China, um, those were all acquisitions. Um, to my knowledge, they haven't um, rebranded Souk at all and, and kept uh, kind of the brand there. So, so I think that's what it is, just a prioritization thing. Jason, do you have a... Yeah, uh, well, I, I, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but strategy is actually one of the words in my title. Um, and it's a little mm. known fact, but in order to get a strategy certificate, you, you have to have a great affinity for a two-by-two two matrix. Um, and I, I don't know if you remember who did this. I feel bad that I don't, but I used to attend the channel advisor conferences and they would always do this great session on the latest trends and opportunities in global expansion. And they, it always started with this two by two matrix and it's one axis is complexity and the other axis is opportunity, right? And so you think complexity, how hard is it to go into that channel? What, you know, what's the regulatory environment? What's the currency environment? What's the language environment? And Africa is actually high complexity because there, there really is no African continent from a commerce standpoint. There's a bunch of countries. There's like 54 different countries, mostly with unique languages and unique regulations and unique currencies. So the complexity is very high. Um, and, the opportunity at the moment is pretty low. Penetration of e-commerce in Africa on a per capita basis is much lower and the spend is much lower than a lot of these more established markets. So I, I'm i sure there's a long-term aspiration for Amazon to dominate the whole planet before they, they get to Mars. But um, in the short run, I, I just feel like that uh, Africa hasn't done as well on that on that two-by-two two matrix that I got from Channel Advisor. Yeah, and I, I've actually talked to a fair number of South Africans, and they order a lot from Amazon. And Amazon has some kind of a global cross-border trade thing where you can actually shop from Amazon and get it shipped to you in South Africa in a, in a not crazy amount of time. Um, so, um, you know, there is an interesting, um, you know, not native Amazon shopping going on in certain areas of, of Africa that I've heard about. Yeah, for sure. And not um, saying there's not an opportunity now. I'm just saying if you're if you have limited treasure that it may not, you know, you may get more value out of your India investment than you are Africa in the short run. Yeah. And if you're already like covering half of the opportunity through this cross border trade solution, then, then, you know, that even is better. Yeah. All right. Here's one for you, Jason. Um, this comes from Kelly uh, Ghosh. I, I think is how you're going to pronounce that. Looking forward to the episode. I'm seeing all the CX-related vendors, Salesforce, SAP, Bloomreach, Acquia, etc., building or buying CDPs in the past 12 months. I get the value of CDPs, but why were all of these acquisitions done so rapidly? Is this related to the third-party cookie changes coming? Good question. Uh, so side note, uh, Kelly is the chief technology officer at uh, Commerce Tools, who we were talking about earlier. And he's also the author of, I think, at least two books uh, that are published by O'Reilly on headless commerce. So we probably should have forwarded the headless commerce question to Kelly. Um, but uh, with regards to his CDP question, uh, for listeners that may not be familiar, CDP stands for Customer Data Platform. Um, and so this, this is a tool that was primarily developed for advertising, although it's now used for some other things, um, where you build a database of unique customer IDs and what you know about those customers, um, uh, and you use it for marketing purposes and mostly for targeting ads, when to, when to show what ads to what customers. Um, and they are super trendy right now. The, has the acquisition um, 
spree been been uh, accelerated by the the privacy changes that we talked about a couple of weeks ago? The, my short answer is probably, but it's interesting because those privacy changes both help and hurt CDPs. Um, they make that f- uh, first party data in a CDP more valuable, um, but they actually make it harder to collect that data and they make it harder to activate that data um, on not first party data. And so I, in the aggregate, I, I'm not sure... I, I sort of doubt that all these acquisitions are because the CDPs very clearly go up in value um, as a result of of uh, these privacy changes. In some ways, uh, more customers opting out and more attention to privacy means that CDPs get smaller, um, and the 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 alternative versions of these things that don't have uniquely identifiable data for an individual customer, which are often called DMPs maybe get bigger. So uh, that's my long answer to say, I don't think it's purely related to the um, changes in privacy. What I think it's related to is that the whole category and notion of personalization is super hyped and popular right now. Um, We actually did a deep dive on personalization a year ago that frankly, I still think stands up pretty well. Um, and in it, I kind of highlight that at the moment, a lot of this personalization is probably overhyped. Um, but, you know, in the last year, there there was a lot of investment dollars that were, you know, looking harder for a home. Um, you know, there was a lot of uh, buzz and hype around uh, uh, personalization and a lot of confusion about privacy. And so I suspect that all of those factors um, contributed to the the shopping spree in CDPs. But in the long run... And because of the privacy issues, I think the way this all plays out is um, instead of uh, it being super valuable for everyone to have a CDP, that there's going to be a small handful of CDPs that are, you know, operated by people that have a ton of first party data that are going to be most valuable. Yeah, I'll just throw in there um, as a guy that watches kind of the, the SaaS space and startups, um, you have this kind of interesting musical chairs um, slash supply domino thing that goes on. So, you know, one of the the big cloud players, um, and I think the bigger ones would be like Salesforce, SAP, Adobe. Um, and then obviously, uh, you know, you have a little bit of IBM. They're not really as aggressive, especially on the e-commerce side now. Maybe Oracle, but even they've been kind of quiet. So those are the three uh, really right now. Um but you know what? Let's say for some reason Salesforce buys something, then the corporate dev groups of the other guys are out there looking and saying, hmm, you know, if there's 10 of these, then then you don't have to do anything. But if there's one more, then your Adobe or SAP, <laughs> you have to be kind of quick because these cloud companies are, are really in an arms race against each other. And, you know, they, they never want to have one of them with some uh, un, you know, advantage over the others. Um, so it's such a big space. The the multiples that those companies enjoy are so big. There's a lot of risk by not not having something. Um, so so that could be one of the reasons you saw this kind of fast uptake by something was really more of um, you know competitive concerns and and keeping up with the Joneses and then a lack of supply. I, I don't. Are there tons of CDP companies or are they kind of rare? Um. Th- there, uh, there's a ton of CDP companies that, uh, it, it's, it's a long tail type thing where only, only, you know, there's a finite supply of ones that have significant customers in them. So that, yeah. you, that meets your, your thing. So I'm going to call that the domino theory of acquisition. The one yeah. that first, cool. first acquisition domino falls, it triggers a bunch of other acquisitions is nobody wants to be the, the loser in the musical chairs, right? Um, so let's move on to the next question. This is from TechWiz. Uh, we've seen a significant stimuli bounce on Amazon. Uh, do both of you feel the reopening exuberance will keep the sales acceleration going? And if so, for how long? Interested to see if you two are in the Jamie Diamond camp. <laughs> yeah. And, um, uh, I love these economics questions because I always beat you on these, Jason. So. <laughs> Um, so it's going to be interesting. So if you kind of, so you got two things going on here. Number one in our world, your, your comps are very important, right? So same store sales and comps and stuff. And that's going to get, um, it's super easy right now because 
this March is obviously way better than last March and April. It's going to be way better. Um, uh, for, for a lot of people, uh, you know, from a store perspective, but then on the e-commerce side, it, it's going to be inverted. So e-commerce is going to face really tough comps. Retail is going to look really good. Um, and then, you know, so that's going to be one aspect. And then, you know, we talked last week about that channel advisor blog and a couple other folks that were talking about this kind of material bump in, in sales from the stimulus checks kind of going out. Uh, and, you know, so the, I think what's going to happen is the tide is going to rise so f- hard from the money being pumped in the system by not only stimulus checks, but just, you know, um, we just had another $2 trillion go out. There's talk of a $4 trillion infrastructure. Some people are saying that should be 5 or $6 trillion. We, We've never had so much money pumped into the system. So I, I kind of, in my mind, the metaphor there is – the tide is going to rise very quickly and e-commerce will benefit from that. So if we, if we had just the year over year effect, e-commerce would, would look like flat to down, I think, but because the tide's going to be rising, I think we're going to have a really nice continued growth in e-commerce. I also, um, you know, when you, um, one of my favorite, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of Elon Musk and, and all, people always asking me, you know, how, how are you able to do these things that you do? And he always goes to core principles. In his world, core principles are physics. Um, you know, rocket fuel burns at this rate and that kind of stuff. In our world, the core principles are consumer behaviors. And I'm I'm convinced that um, you know, GoPuff and Instacart and all these things that that people have sampled through the pandemic, um, they're addictive. And I use that phrase zero friction addiction. They're pretty sticky because once you have that really super low friction grade experience. It amplifies the friction of the the uh, the higher friction experience. Um, so I think those things are going to stick at kind of a rate of eighty percent, way more stickier than a lot of people I think think. Um, I don't know if that puts me in the Jamie Diamond camp, but I think I think those are the things. So a negative is so to summarize a negative is the year of your comps are going to be hard on e-commerce. A positive is the 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 not only the stimulus checks but the the macro stimulus going on. Um, and then the third one is I do think the zero friction addiction is going to um, also surprise people. So I think that nets out that we're going to be surprised um, that we see the sales acceleration keep going. Um, and, you know, the thing that can, this is probably a topic for another time, but then the thing that concerns me is We've never put this much money out there. We've never printed so much money. And at some point, inflation is going to be a problem. And we're starting to see it in certain parts of the economy and food cost and home building. And the, Things are getting pretty hot already. Um, so that could be the thing that slows it down. I think that'll probably be a um, early next year problem that we'll have to worry about. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, it, uh, I mean – in general, I think in aggregate, if you look at all of these favorable and unfavorable trends, it's uh, the favorable are going to outweigh it. So I think like industry averages for both retail and e-commerce will continue to go up. Um, but the the real story is going to be the winners and losers, right? So there there are definitely categories of consumer spending um, that are likely to go backwards a little bit you know, next year, right? Like there's huge pent up demand for travel. Uh, and so some of those dollars that people have been, you know, investing in their home this year um, are, are not going to get reinvested in their home next year. They're going to get invested in a new trip or more time in the bars uh, and more restaurant food instead of grocery food. Um, so I, I do think there, there are going to be some people that are going to struggle to comp um, because they, they were disproportionate beneficiaries this year and, and there's going to be a counter trend uh, next year. I, I also do think there is a little bit of a bifurcation. There's big chunks of the economy that are booming and you don't have all this extra cash pouring in and the savings rate is going up and all, all of these good things comma. There's a huge chunk of the economy that were low wage workers, many of which worked in the restaurant industry and half the restaurants aren't going to reopen and it's going to take five years for those jobs to come back. Um, and there's going to be no more economic stimulus for the rest of this year or next year, uh, because once the health problem goes away, 
there's going to be no appetite for passing it. And so those people are going to have a really hard time in the industries that are tied to those people are going to be challenging. So I think we're going to see it both ways. But on the aggregate, there's going to be more good economic news than not. Um, and I'm calling it right now. You're going to see it. Uh, check me in a year. I wish I could go back to the prediction show. Uh, the new catchphrase is yacht ya, which is year over two years ago. Um, and, and I'm predicting that uh, when you do the word cloud of all the things CEOs say in their um, in their shareholder meetings for the next year, uh, that yacht ya is going to show up a little bit. Yacht ya. Okay, um, that's a weird prediction, but if uh, if you say so. Um, so we are we have two questions left, and we're uh, up against time. So we're going to go into the lightning round. Jason, lightning round for you. Uh, this comes from Trevor Sumner. There will be a multi-billion-dollar media shift to in-store. Who controls the brand spin? Will it be media folks? Will shopper marketing and trade dollars increase? How will brand organizations need to transform to take advantage of the digitized store? That's an easy one to answer in Twitter, a tweet length. Go. Yeah, it actually is easy to answer in a lightning round. Like that whole industry and those siloed budgets get disrupted in the long run. And I don't know how many years it's going to take. All those budgets get consolidated and those silos break down, right? So there, um, there, there's going to be a marketing person, a CMO that, that, um, owns all of that spend. And there's not going to be a separate trade budget and all of these separate retail budgets. And, uh, they're going to, you know, consider next best dollar for, you know, Super Bowl ads against ads on the shelf at Walmart. Yep. Uh, I don't have an opinion on that. So we'll go on to the next question. And it comes from, uh, this was from Facebook, Scott Silverman. What do you think will be the most surprising post-pandemic consumer behaviors that e-commerce retailers should prepare for? Yeah, Scott, you want to go first? Scott to Scott. Um, if you don't, uh, sure. I, yeah, I, you know, I think the things that we've already tried are sticky. Uh, I'll be controversial. There's a lot of buzz that people are all going to work from home. I think that's overblown. Um, I think ninety percent plus the folks will go back to an office. They'll get pulled in. They they think they're going to work uh, remote, and then you know what'll happen is uh, another domino effect. So. Sales teams are not efficient uh, working from home. So you'll have a sales floor and then those folks will be like, well, why isn't the marketing team here supporting us? And then the marketing team will kind of have to come in and then they'll be like, well, why aren't the accounting folks here? You know, we have all these questions and now I have to hop on a zoom to ask them a question. And they'll be like, well, let's bring the engineering team in. And suddenly the whole company will be back in an office. So um, I think that's one that's not going to, um, that a lot of people are assuming is going to change. Um, that's not, it doesn't really impact e-commerce per se. Um, but that's one that I'll, I'll be slightly controversial. on. how about you, Jason? Uh, good one. I, I'm a, so we don't have time to get into it. I don't totally agree with you on that one. So that'll be fun. We'll, we'll visit it again later. I totally get where you're coming from though. Um, the, the short term one that everyone talks about that I'm on is peacocking, right? Like that, that, you know, we've all been wearing sweats, uh, uh sweatpants and, and sitting in our homes for a year. And so there's going to be this counter reaction where everyone's going to want to wear, you know, you know, stand out and go be very, uh, um, gregarious and outgoing. Like that's kind of what happened in the roaring twenties after the Spanish flu in 1918. Um, so, so there is some of that, um, that, that we might see in the short term. Uh, to me, the big, the big thing that's happened that people aren't talking about enough is consolidation, right? That the, um, the pandemic dramatically and disproportionately benefited big chains over small independents in every category, but especially in retail. Um, and so I, I'll, I'll, pub I'll republish a new version, but um, almost every public company that has reported their e-commerce growth grew dramatically more than the industry average. Um, and the reason that's possible is because a ton of mom and pops shrunk. Um, and I, I think there's all kinds of implications for that. But, you know, Walmart, Albertsons and, and Kroger were 40 percent of, of a CPG's business before the pandemic. And now they're going to be 60 percent. And that that's going to be a shift in the balance of power and a shift in leverage. And all, and there are all these other implications around this enormous consolidation. The chain restaurants are doing fine, but all the independent restaurants are gone. Bars, everything. So 
I think there's all kinds of implications from that that we're just starting to think about. Are you in on that one, Scott? Uh, I disagree on some of that stuff, but yeah, we'll we'll have to. Uh, this is a good topic. We'll have to revisit it. Yeah, I like it. It's a great question, Scott. Uh, always appreciate your participation. And that is going to be a good place to leave it because we have used up our allotted time plus Scott's four bonus minutes. Um, so as always, if we if you disagree with our answer or didn't get to our uh, uh, or we didn't get to your question, uh, feel free to hit us up on Facebook uh, or Twitter. Um, and uh, uh, you know, as always, if you enjoyed the show, please give us that five star review on iTunes. Thanks, everyone, and until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 